after mother died, I found a box full of audio tapes. Thursday, September 21st, 1961. Dr. Martin Orn with Ann Sexton. Okay, Ann, let's begin. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. There's a difference between loneliness and being alone, and that's the subtle difference in a hopper work. I should just say something. No one's here. I come in here almost every damn Wednesday night, and I never get a word out. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and little audio sketches we find all over the world. On the air, the internet, we listen to everything we can get our ears on and then bring you the best of what we hear each week. I have found the warm caves in the woods, filled them with skillets, carving, shelves, closets, silks, innumerable goods. What is it you strive for? Someone to look at me and tell me I'm all right. Or to hit me. Being hit is like taking pills. Talking about art on the radio is tough. But we have found two stories that are as creative in their approach to their subjects as the subjects themselves. Today we take you inside the lives and works of two great American artists, painter Edward Hopper and poet Anne Sexton. And when I say take you into, I mean diving into, delving into. Like hearing audio tapes of Anne Sexton's private sessions with her therapist. One, two, one, two. Like easing into Hopper's famous painting Nighthawks, as if you yourself were sitting on one of those diner stools at 2 a.m., about to order a couple over easy. Tonight is going to be different. I'm going to just say something. Anything. Stay with us. You know the painting. Three customers and a counterman at a 1940s New York City diner in the middle of the night. It's mysterious, it's dark, it's lonely, and something about that melancholy resonates with us, connecting us with Hopper's iconic work. In Painting the Loneliness, producer Judith Kampfner brings the painting Nighthawks to life, almost literally. You have these you know, separate individuals that have come to a diner and they are very much alone. The painting's Nighthawks, it's four figures in a very spare, empty diner. It's like a stage set. Upstage, a man and a woman are sitting next to each other. Downstage, with his back to us, a man is sitting with his hat on. And center stage, bending over slightly, is a counterman. The guy with his back to us is completely closed off to us. The man, we can see, his face is not pleasant. The woman looks distracted. The server's looking up, but he doesn't look especially friendly either. None of these characters look especially happy, that's for sure. Here you have this artist who is above all an artist of melancholia, isolation, and yet he's the most popular artist probably in American history. There's something about those images of aloneness that speaks to the American condition. This is Adam Gopnik. I'm a writer, mostly for the New Yorker magazine, usually about cities, often about art. 
And we hear where those two things collided, cities and art, in one of the most iconic images of American painting. It was finished in 1942 by Edward Hopper. It was in the middle of the career of this American realist painter who lived all his adult life in Greenwich Village. The buildings here are very similar to the ones that Hopper painted, low-rise apartment buildings, but when you get down on the sidewalk and you see the people in these alfresco restaurants and in the cafes, these are the seriously moneyed people, the celebrities, the stars. And this is no longer the area of Hopper's Day. In those days, it was a neighborhood of... Middle-class people living in apartments of diners and laundries. The middle-class, really lower middle-class New York that was still dominant 30 years ago on this street. And most of that has vanished from New York. I'm Barbara Haskell. I'm a curator at the Whitney Museum. I'm doing a show this fall called Hopper and His Time that aims to situate Hopper within the realist artists uh, in America from 1900 to 1940. He strips a lot of the everyday detail out of a scene, doesn't he? I mean, we're in this diner and we don't see napkins and we don't see... Yeah, that's right. He deprives it of its specificity. And one of the things underlying Hopper's work, he's a great formalist. And that's one reason why he's embraced by not only those who love realism, but those who love abstraction. Of the realists, he's perhaps the most abstract artist. No one else is in that position. He's a bridge between these two very different styles. This compositional rigor that he has, this formalism, is very unique within the world of realist pictures. There's a simplification of form. Details are eliminated in order to get to this underlying formal structure that then is the carrier of this very stark reality that he's giving us. With Nighthawks, we're looking in. Aren't yes. we? I think actually in most Hopper pictures where there's a figure, we're looking in. That's the sense that we have of voyeurism, that we're looking in on an intimate private space. We're looking in apartment windows, we're looking in restaurant windows, we're looking in on a figure. Very seldom do the figures look out. The characters in this picture, do you think that his people tended to be sort of looking aside each other, not actually looking each other in the face. All of them are lost in their own thoughts. He's actually portraying introspection. Hopper is, in a sense, a metaphysical painter. And what he paints is not so much the subject matter of American life, which is his springboard, but he paints aspects of the human condition, which are very universal. And that's what makes his work so popular. It's able to communicate to every person an essential experience that he or she has already had. Still, I can't but help see some drama in this picture. I feel that it's especially that, ironically, in the back of the man who's looking at the couple. And I sense there's this dynamic that's going on between the four people that's very strong. There's a scene that's happening which is engaging all of them. But the emotion that I feel that's most there is a sense of being lonely and left out, a lingering envy that this single man has for the couple but this is just my idea, and this picture is so full of suggestion that many people will have very different ideas about what's going on in this foursome.
I never should have let her do my nails. What is this color? It ain't me. Too showy. I should have just told her when she was doing it. Gloria, I don't really like that. I need to do that more. Just come right out and say what I want to say. Gloria, these nails are too loud. They ain't me. And now look at me. And just to microscopically, I mean, have you ever looked at it under a magnifying glass or anything like that in terms Not of the print? Not under a magnifying glass. Do you know what she's doing, what she's looking at? No. Because it's... It could be like a little piece of paper with a phone number on it. She could be examining her nails. I think she's not looking at the thing in front of her. She's lost in her own thoughts. Look at me here. Isn't it funny? My whole life and all the water under the bridge and all the places I could have gone, the people I could have been with and... Still here in the city. Where was that place that Gloria was talking about? Bermuda or something? She had that picture in that book of that white beach, the blue ocean. I could go there. Fall is coming. <laughs> like I'm ever gonna sit on a beach or something. Sit there on a beach with the sun and everything. Bermuda. I can dream, right? So what you're saying is although it's a, he's creating a kind of film set or a stage set, it's essentially not dramatic. It's dramatic because we think something is going to happen and it's caught a moment that's he's caught a moment that's very fraught, a moment in which we can read our own experiences and, and expectations and longings and yearnings. But I think there isn't anything that's going to happen. The people are going to be waiting forever, essentially. The wonderful thing about Hopper's work is it it's open to any interpretation and it establishes a conversation with the viewer that elicits those kinds of interpretations. And I think Hopper would be perfectly happy with almost anything people would describe about the pictures because it does strike this universal sense that we all have of having been in a similar kind of space. So we project our own yearnings, our own longings, our own experiences into the picture. Is that window clean? Jimmy was supposed to clean that thing last night before he left. He never does it. Thinks I ain't gonna notice. What a pain in the neck. I'm tired of doing the work of other people and never getting any credit. And here I am, stuck working the graveyard shift. Why ain't Jimmy getting this shift? Mr. Carl thinks Jimmy's the cat's meow, and I ain't got a clue why. What exactly is going on in their heads? I've never come up with a fully crafted interior monologue for them. I always see them as characters in a film noir of the period. That is that they're brooding on some lost love or worry. And of course, there's hardly a film noir of the 1940s, exactly around then, that doesn't have a Nighthawk scene in it, where there isn't a scene in a diner late at night with, uh, you know, pops working behind the counter and music playing on the jukebox. And it's usually either a place of assignation for the, the star-crossed lovers, or it's a place where the hapless loser, who's been drawn to the femme fatale as a moth to a flame, goes to try and regroup himself. Sitting here next to you, baby, I can smell your hair. You make me crazy, doll. Where have you been? 
And why are you meeting me at this place? You giving me the high hat now, after all I've done? I don't hear boo from you for days, and you call me here in the middle of the night? What gives? I got the money. I've had it for days now. I've been sitting on it like an egg, waiting for your call. But if you think I'm gonna pass this dough off to you and then I'm gonna get dusted off, then you got another thing coming. And don't you think I don't see that Buick Woody sitting down my street every night? Something don't smell right about all this toots. And I'll tell you what, I better get some answers, but quick. My feeling with those guys in that painting is that they are not good people. They're probably shifty criminals, especially the guy with his back to us. Didn't think that's what the fellow was going to look like. Way I figured it, it'd be more of a looker. Look at him over there, sitting next to her like a bump on a log. Maybe they're getting ready to end it. <laughs> Boss don't care, though. Someone messes around with his lady, and that's it. My name is Gordon Tyson. I'm the author of Staying Up Much Too Late, Edward Hopper and the Dark Side of the American Psyche. I really feel like Hopper was envisioning a kind of a world of, of sin and crime with that painting. I do. Guess the boss figured I'd catch him in a sack. Guess that's what I figured, too. Guess that's what you always figure when you think your wife's messing around, that you're going to catch her in a towel, the guy coming out of the john in his birthday suit, then you put a quick one in him, right in the eye. Yeah, but now we're here. Middle of the goddamn night. Got this no-nothing soda jerk trying to chap me up. Maybe I should just beat feet. Wait for him at his apartment. Maybe I'll get some toast. A muffin or something. I think he probably liked the intrigue. Had a kind of uh, an attraction to the intrigue of crime and sex. A kind of purient interest in those characters. And I think we do too when we're looking at it. We're like seeing people in a diner late at night hanging out for no particular reason. We probably have our suspicions aroused that these are people who are in the criminal world. So, Barbara, if one imagines that the man watching them is some kind of sleuth or some kind of person who's been paid to be a private spy to watch the couple, or perhaps he's a criminal of some sort, that's all assuming too much. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. No, Hopper would never paint a scene of such drama. Uh, he would never paint a scene that suggested a denouement that had a gunfight or a, the, the spy comes in and makes the arrest. No, that's much too dramatic. He's painting the drama of everyday life and the drama of what it means to be a human being in the 20th century. So even though he said that he admired Hemingway's The Killers short story, you don't think that that actually has any association with this picture? I don't, actually. Is there a covert eroticism about the picture? Can't believe he plopped down right here next to me. All these seats and he came right here. And he was so polite to the waiter. I love a man with some manners. His hand is almost touching mine. My goodness. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just look at my nails like it's no big thing. He smells so good. That's an expensive cologne, I can tell. It smells like pine or something. Maybe, maybe I'll ask for a cigarette. I'll just say, cigarette? I think I will. Oh God, his knee just touched my knee. Yes, the man is sitting close to the woman, but if you look closely, 
He's making eye contact with the counterman. I should just say something. No one's here. I come in here almost every damn Wednesday night and I never get a word out. But tonight is going to be different. I'm going to just say something. Anything. Look at that skin. Peaches and cream, I heard someone call it once. Peaches and cream. I love that fair complexion. What am I afraid of? I gotta wait for the others to leave. That's what I'll do. And then next time he comes to fill the coffee, just say it. You must be beat after a late shift like this, right? Nothing to lose. Joey. Yeah. I should use his name, too. He told me his name, so I should use it. You must be beat after a late shift like this, right? Joey? Joey from Kentucky. So we're here at this spot, a triangular plot with a very ugly chain link fence and horrible barbed wire like you'd have in a prison yard. Around it, spelt out in tiles, tiles for America. All along are tiles very firmly tied to this fence, which are tributes to 9-11. And they have a very f sort of folksy feel to them. Lots of doves, lots of poetry, lots of flags, lots of red, white, and blue. So it's a very strangely significant and poignant area. It's spookily coincidental that this area is now a community-centered memorial to the attack on the Twin Towers on 9-11. And the diner that was one of Hopper's inspirational buildings for his picture was at this very spot and that Hopper began painting his picture almost immediately after the attack on Pearl Harbor. It is interesting if, to think about that because at exactly this moment of American purpose, American spirit, a moment when America, as John Updike wrote memorably, was about to strangle two snakes in their cradle, Japan and Germany, and become the greatest power in the world and one of the greatest powers the world had ever seen, the imagery of America in its popular culture and its fine arts is not sort of social realism is not triumphant imagery, it's imagery of loneliness, confusion, mystery, betrayal. It's the image of the 40s thriller and it's the imagery of Hopper. Can't believe I'm working here at the diner tonight and then, the same time next week, I'm gonna be overseas. I'd go tomorrow if I could, I swear to God. Them Japs, just wait till I get at them. Seems silly to even be here pouring coffee and making toast for these sad sacks here in the middle of the night when I'm going to come back a hero. And I'm going to come back alive. Not like Tommy Greenleaf. I remember him playing stickball on Christopher Street. Kind of cocky kid. Well, I ain't coming back in a pine box like Tommy Greenleaf. I'm going to be right there in the big victory parade, I tell you. We're the toughest country in the world, and we're going to whip them. And then I'll be back home. And look at all these sad sacks. Jeez. They're just like mom. Pouting around like the dog died. Well, I'm ready. And I'm going to give it everything I got. The look of the painting is very much 1940s. The beaked nose, sharp faces, and monochrome outfits. 
And yet, in a sense, he was a man out of sync with his time. He identified with those things in the world which were from a 19th century moment when there wasn't the hustle bustle of the city and the urban experience of everyone being together. He really craved those moments of peace and solitude. Although he's usually seen as a painter of alienation and loneliness, and in Hopper's work, I think the misunderstanding for him, that's not depressing. It's not a cause for mourning. It is the reality of life. There's a difference between loneliness and being alone, and that's the subtle difference in a Hopper work. It's very easy to think that he's painting loneliness, and that registers with all of us. We as viewers remember those situations that we've been in where we feel alienated, awkward, not in contact with other people, and have a yearning to be in contact. But he is suggesting that life needs to be lived in the end alone and it falls out of a tradition of Emerson and a whole group of you know, transcendental thinkers from New England. And it's the idea that the base reality of the human condition is that we are all alone in this world. In Self-Reliance, Emerson wrote that the great man is he who in the midst of the crowd keeps with perfect sweetness the independence of solitude. And that's something to aspire to. For Hopper, it was not only something to aspire to, it was the reality that one had to accept. The diner is a vanishing species, but at the time it was ubiquitous. Although his diner is located in Greenwich Village, it could have been in any small town anywhere across the United States. But the distinguishing feature would be when you went inside, there would be a long counter, chrome and glass, modern, clean, efficient feel to it. One of the things that makes cities wonderful is that they give you sort of private public space. You can be in a public space and still be very private. I love to eat in restaurants. It's one of my keenest joys. It's a wonderful experience. You're by yourself and yet you're in a public space. And it mixes loneliness and a certain kind of joy, a certain kind of love of being alone, the sense that you can be anonymous and the, the pleasures of anonymity, which are as large as its drawbacks. And I think that's one of the things that goes on in all of Hopper's art, is there's a funny kind of dialogue between uh, loneliness, between isolation, which is seen as something plaintive and sad and uh, forbidding, and at the same time, there's something deeply seductive about it. There's some, I don't think anybody looking at Nighthawks thinks to themselves, oh my God, I would never want to be in that diner. I would never want to be there. On the contrary, I think if it were two in the morning, I wish there were a place open like that. Strangely enough, it looks like a nice place to be, isn't it? I mean, I'm talking about how alien it is and strange, and yet, boy, it'd be great. You, just, you really do want to go there and hang out and have a cup of coffee. Something comforting about that diner. I love diners. We all love diners. Why is that? The diner, which is so emblematic of American culture. Great places to go, relax, have a cup of coffee, hamburgers, home fries, eggs, nothing special. Feeling somehow like you all belong without belonging to anything in particular. Boy, this coffee smells good. Always does. I'd take a place like this any day over them fancy restaurants. Here, if I'm not sure what I want, well, then at least I know what they have. I know Joey behind the counter, and he knows my name. And when other customers come in, I can say hello if I want. I can ignore them if I want. 
the hell I'm going to do with all those fools at a fancy place talking about their wives and their kids. All the chatter. Hell, I'd be alone when I cash in my chips. When I get used to it right now. This is where I feel at home. You come as you please, you go as you please. In peace. What more can a man ask for? Night in the city is simultaneously deeply seductive and wonderful, and it's a place of danger and entrapment. And that tension is one of the things that I think that keeps us uh, riveted to that picture and to the whole idea of night in the city. It's a very, very powerful modern metaphor. We have movies called Night in the City because it's so powerful. This hour we're at right now, when this, really the sun's gone down and night is, is in, it's what Frank Sinatra sings about. That's a magical moment in the city, I, when the streetlights come on and the natural light is completely eradicated, and the city, in a sense, defeats nature at that moment. I think something of that doubleness is pregnant in the picture. When your lonely heart has learned its lesson, you'd be hers if only she would call. In the wee small hours of the morning That's the time you miss her most What did Al say again today? Told me get out of that counterman job. Nobody makes any dough working those hours. But you know what? I don't care. I love this. Especially now. It feels like the rest of the world is in bed. But not you. A couple or two still might walk by the window here, arm in arm, laughing. Taxi might creep up eyeballing for some fares in here, but other than that, it's just me. And whoever pops in. Sometimes regulars. Sometimes total strangers. They come in for a little quiet. Take a little break, I guess. This is the best time. Hopper posed for the man sitting next to the woman in Night Talks. His wife, Jo, posed for all of the women in Hopper's paintings and they had a very tempestuous marriage. And certainly the faces of these two people are very harsh and they lack a warmth. That would seem to fit in with a, a marriage where there was constant tension. Someone asked him what he was after in a painting and he said, I'm after me. He believes the artist paints self-portraits. He was a very taciturn, silent individual. He had a difficult relationship with his wife, he had friends, but he wasn't a social being. He was painting his own interior feelings using the springboard of an actual subject that he saw in the real world. If she and I were sitting together at home, this might seem awkward, the silence. Here at the diner, it seems okay though. One doesn't feel the silence as much here. We're right next to each other. 
There might as well be brick and mortar stacked ten feet high right in between us. And maybe that's fine by me. I don't know. I like the quiet. I'm comfortable here. Maybe she's just not. Maybe that's the problem. Well, she's checking her nails now. That means it'll be time to go soon. standing a block away from the setting of Hopper's original painting and this is a modern equivalent of his diner. It's essentially a cafe with a counter but a huge vitrine and when you look inside you can see the people but you can't hear what they're saying. Nevertheless you want to find out what's going on because they're very vivid and they're lit by this wonderful glow of light that as you look through the window draws you in and you want to be part of that scene. Painting the Loneliness was produced by Judith Kampfner. The story is a Ladbroke production that first aired on BBC Radio 4. To see the painting or hear more work by Judith Kampfner, visit our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival. I'm Gwen Maxi. We love to hear from you. You don't have to be a painter or poet. Just a hunt and peck typist will do. Comments, questions, rants, and raves can be sent to ReSound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Or find us on the internet by searching Third Coast Festival on Facebook and Twitter. I have gone out of the Zest Ridge, haunting the Mark when my dad married my mother, he hadn't married a poet. He married, you know, a young girl who wanted to be a housewife and mother. Then she, you know, she went mad and, and began to write poetry and became famous. Poet Anne Sexton suffered from mental illness all her life and often referred to her poetry as therapy. In fact, it was her long-term therapist who first suggested she try her hand at it. In short order, she became one of America's best-loved poets, and in 1967, even won the Pulitzer Prize. But for all the accolades she earned, her personal life was tumultuous and difficult. It's the frank and surprising treatment of Sexton's darker side that caught our attention in our next story. Sexton's daughters speak very candidly, for the first time together, about their famous mother, and we hear tapes of her private sessions with her therapist, made public after her 1974 suicide. Here is Consorting with Angels, produced by Charlotte Austin. <clears throat> one, two, one, two. Thursday, September 21st, 1961. Dr. Martin Orn with Anne Sexton. Okay, Anne, let's begin. You say you had a dream last night. This perfect voice was enunciating very carefully, as if to tell me exactly how it was. He keeps telling me what's so, and probably he's right, 
But it isn't so for me, so I've got to try again to make the same thing so for both of us, so we can make sense to each other. Otherwise, I'm crazy. I'm lost. If you can talk to one person, you're not crazy. Right. One sane person, that is. Mother had a particular recording that she listened to over and over again when she was writing. It really takes me back, you know. It makes me remember. You cannot save somebody. If someone is going to implode, and uh, destroy herself, there's nothing you can do. I felt uh, stupid and guilty and, uh, well, you learn to live with your mistakes. Poets do tend to push the limits, not only in their writing, but in their preparation for writing. I think we all want to get to the place where the images are and discover new things. I have gone out, a possessed witch, haunting the black air, braver at night, dreaming evil. I have done my hitch over the plain houses, light by light. Lonely thing, twelve-fingered, out of mind. A woman like that is not a woman quite. I have been her kind. I have found the warm caves in the woods, filled them with skillets, carving, shelves, closets, silks, innumerable goods, fixed the suppers for the worms and the elves, whining, rearranging the disaligned. A woman like that is misunderstood. I have been her kind. I have ridden in your cart, driver, waved my nude arms at villages going by, Learning the last bright roots, survivor where your flames still bite my thigh, and my ribs crack where your wheels wind. A woman like that is not ashamed to die. I have been her kind. Anne Sexton's youngest daughter is Joyce Sexton. Her desk was in a corner of our family room. There were built-in bookshelves above the desk, and there were lots of small uh, notes or quotes taped up around the lower bookshelf. She loved to work in this little nook. Linda Gray Sexton is Anne's eldest daughter. She had an old battered desk with a leather top. She had a very lovely small desk lamp that threw a yellow glow so that when she was working, she was kind of illuminated by that. Her back was to the room. I think what was most important to her was to have quiet <laughs> and that when we were children that we didn't interrupt her. My sister and I tiptoed around a great deal when she was writing in those early years without understanding what was going on. I think the main thing for me was that when she was writing, she wasn't crazy and she wasn't in the hospital. 
when she was really far gone into a depression, she couldn't write at all. A hospital encases everything, mostly your soul. And so what do I do in my old age? I keep going into nuthouses where you, they lock you up. Perfect circle. After Mother died, I found a box full of audio tapes. They were audio tapes of her sessions with her psychiatrist. So I took them out, I listened to them. Um, they were very painful to listen to. I love Joy. Never loved Linda. Something comes between me and Linda. I hate her and slap her in the face, never for anything naughty. I, I just seem to be constantly harming her. She was not a very hands-on mother. Her own life was so busy and so full, there wasn't a lot of room for us. I realize with guilt that I am a woman, that it should be the children or my husband or my home not writing, but it is not. Oh, I do love my children, but am not feminine enough to be all lost in their care. It wears me. I believe there was a climactic experience, if you will, where my mother confessed to a neighbor that she was afraid that she was going to hurt us. And uh, the neighbor notified my dad who came home and uh, we were both immediately removed. We were battered by the illness because we didn't understand what was going on. People withdrew because of the illness, didn't understand her, were vaguely horrified or extremely horrified. Tell them we're fake. Turn around. We're um, fake! We don't love each other at all. We hate each other and despise each other. We just can't bear each other. It's a horrible loving between us. Oh, my It's so easy to be natural when you've got this. I mean, that's for real. I was spared the level of uh, her madness that was very, very present during those early years. But my sister went back to my mom quite early, and um, during that time, my mom was hospitalized uh, periodically. By the time we got to a poem like The Double Image, she was seeing repetitions of her relation, her rocky relationship with her mother as it mirrored itself in her growing relationship with my sister. So the feminine role as mother was really played out in that poem. Extracts from the Double Image I am 30 this November. You are still small in your fourth year. We stand watching the yellow leaves go queer, flapping in the winter rain, falling flat and washed. And I remember mostly the three autumns you did not live here. They said I'd never get you back again. I tell you what you'll never really know. All the medical hypotheses that explain my brain will never be as true as these struck leaves letting go. I, who chose two times to kill myself, had said your nickname the mewling months when you first came, until a fever rattled in your throat and I moved like a pantomime above your head. Ugly angels spoke to me. The blame, I heard them say, was mine. They tattled like green witches in my head, letting doom leak like a broken faucet. 
As if doom had flooded my belly and filled your bassinet, an old debt I must assume. I remember we named you Joyce, so we could call you Joy. You came like an awkward guest that first time, all wrapped and moist and strange at my heavy breast. I needed you. I didn't want a boy, only a girl, a small milky mouse of a girl already loved, already loud in the house of herself. We named you Joy. I, who was never quite sure about being a girl, needed another life, another image to remind me. And this was my worst guilt. You could not cure nor soothe it. I made you to find me. If what we've heard is true about her mother's coldness and tendency to criticize, then she may well have had to be wary of her constantly. Anne Rouse is a poet and former psychiatric nurse. Her particular disturbance had to do with incursions on her, on her privacy, on her sexuality, on her sense of identity, possibly from both parents when Sexton was a child. Her relationship with her father was, was tricky. She wished so much that they could have some intense yet appropriate relationship, which proved to be very difficult. Eventually, she began to wonder whether or not she had been sexually abused, and she wrote about that, but she was never 100% sure that her unconscious wasn't dredging this up. I think her unconscious may have gone into overdrive and spilled out into ordinary life. So yes, I, th I think she, yeah, she had a very creative relationship with the truth for various reasons. Her inner life, she would talk about more freely with me than with some others. The poet J.D. McClatchy was a close friend of Anne Sexton. We became good friends, I think, because I became an audience and she was given a new chance to perform. But I was never sure what was, what was fact and what was fantasy. At times, I remember coming home late at night from a restaurant and we would sit in her living room and knock back, you know, another couple of vodkas and uh, she would play music. She said, talked about her father having raped her. And to tell you the honest truth, I don't know whether that was true or not. Okay, Ann. Tell me about your father. Father comes in drunk, wakes me up saying, I just wanted to see where you were. Sits on the bed, takes a bottle out of his pocket and drinks. I asked where mommy was. Gone to bed and locked the door. He says, do you like me? He's holding me. He kissed me on the lips. And he started to leave. And I held on and didn't want him to go. Then he came back, left his bottle on the table. Sexton had a great deal of difficulty remembering the content of her interviews with Dr. Orme. She would go into a trance state and find that afterwards uh, she retained very little of what had been said. Your problems with memory 
are symptoms that some part of you knows a lot about. This taping process, recording our conversations, gives you a tool, enables you to work with that part of yourself. I think it'll be important for you to listen to this tape. There's a lot there. Am I ever going to work through this? That's what you're doing. That's what I'm doing? Extracts from All My Pretty Ones Father, this year's jinx rides us apart, where you followed our mother to her cold slumber, a second shock boiling its stone to your heart, leaving me here to shuffle and disencumber you from the residence you could not afford. A gold key, your half of a woolen mill, twenty suits from Dunn's, an English Ford. The love and legal verbiage of another will, Boxes of pictures of people I do not know. I touch their cardboard faces. They must go. I hold a five-year diary that my mother kept for three years, telling all she does not say of your alcoholic tendency. You overslept, she writes. My godfather, each Christmas day with your blood will I drink down your glass of wine. The diary of your hurly-burly years goes to my shelf to wait for my age to pass. Only in this hoarded span will love persevere. Whether you are pretty or not, I outlive you. Bend down my strange face to yours and forgive you. She was divided at her very root, in a sense, her unconscious mind would have had to take a back seat and the two became separate. What is it you strive for? Someone to look at me and tell me I'm all right or to hit me. Being hit is like taking pills, destroying a part of me, squashing it. The relationship my mother and father had was complicated. Everybody had a complicated relationship with my mother. Their relationship moved from a very intense love to a nurturing love to episodes of violence. Mother would be very provocative with her speech. Then he would lose control and end up uh, hitting her. At the same time, she would be hitting herself there was always a, a fear on both Linda's and my part that they would start to fight and violence would erupt. It wasn't a very safe house. We had to try and protect mother. We had to try and call the police in time. There were a lot of incidents where we were called upon to intervene. When my dad married my mother, he hadn't married a poet. He married, you know, a young girl who wanted to be a housewife and mother. Then she, you know, she went mad and, and began to write poetry and became famous. My husband hates the way I read poems. He says, you sound like a minister. Darling, come here. Come here. Come here, honey. Don't be shy of the stupid television camera. Come here. For me, will you come here and tell me about it? No, come on. <laughs> he struggled with trying to be, quote, kind of the man of the house with a woman who was incredibly powerful. It's not that I'm beautiful. It's just that I can make some men fall in love with me. Ever since my mother died, 
I want to have the feeling someone's in love with me. I went to see her. I knocked at the door. One of her daughters answered and said, well, Mother, she asked if you come upstairs and you can talk to her uh, in her bedroom. I did, and she began instantly to complain about her health, particularly her teeth, which were giving her a great deal of trouble. And I have other troubles, she said. I have very sensitive nipples. You'll see. I, I was just dumbfounded. Uh, I was terrified, and I was hooked at the same time. I wouldn't want to have an orgasm in front of you, but no, that is it. Listen. Boundaries were the one thing she had the most trouble with. There were a number of poets with whom she had affairs or tried to involve in affairs. Mother sexualized many relationships that she had in inappropriate ways. Extracts from Flea on Your Donkey Because there was no other place to flee to, I came back to the scene of the disordered senses, came back last night at midnight, arriving in the thick June night without luggage or defenses. This is madness, but a kind of hunger. What good are my questions in this hierarchy of death, where the earth and the stones go din, 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 it is hardly a feast. It is my stomach that makes me suffer. Turn my hungers, for once make a deliberate decision. There are brains that rot here like black bananas. Hearts have grown as flat as dinner plates. Anne, Anne, flee on your donkey, flee this sad hotel, ride out on some hairy beast, gallop backward pressing your buttocks to his withers, sit to his clumsy gait somehow, ride out any old way you please. In this place everyone talks to his own mouth, that's what it means to be crazy. Those I loved best died of it, the fool's disease. In the later years, she stopped taking her prescribed dosages and went on to self-medicate with alcohol and very quickly became a true, full-blown alcoholic. You see somebody destroying herself and you want to help, and the only thing you can think to do is say, oh, sure, I'll get up and, and pour you another vodka. So you become complicit in the destruction I felt uh, stupid and guilty, and, uh, well, you learn to live with your mistakes. We tried not to think about what was happening until it was upon us. We tried to cheer her up. We just, we didn't know what to do. She would get to the bottom of the depression, and that was when she would try to commit suicide. The depression becomes overwhelming after a time, and then you just know um, we all knew that it was only a matter of time before she tried again. It felt like she was going down a rabbit hole. I think I was beginning to kind of chalk some of it off to histrionics. To be honest, I mean, I think that maybe that was how I coped with it. For me, there still is that struggle of how much of her madness was, uh, was it sounds so terrible to say, it was a choice. Wanting to die. Since you ask, most days I cannot remember. I walk in my clothing, unmarked by that voyage, 
Then the almost unnameable lust returns. Even then I have nothing against life. I know well the grass blades you mention, the furniture you have placed under the sun. But suicides have a special language. Like carpenters, they want to know which tools. They never ask why build. Twice I have so simply declared myself, have possessed the enemy, eaten the enemy, have taken on his craft, his magic. In this way, heavy and thoughtful, warmer than oil or water, I have rested drooling at the mouth hole. Balanced there, suicides sometimes meet, raging at the fruit, a pumped up moon, leaving the bread they mistook for a kiss, leaving the page of the book carelessly open, something unsaid, the phone off the hook, and the love, whatever it was, an infection. Looking back, I can say that I did some things that were cruel because I didn't understand what any of this really was. I just felt so angry with her. I thought she should grow up and take responsibility. When she was hospitalized, I refused to go to visit her. I wouldn't talk to her on the phone some of the time. I mean, I did a variety of things that I regret now. Often I was, I was anxious. She was pretty out of control, mercurial, very, very, very depressed very promiscuous, and I left the house. I, I moved out, and I felt badly about that. I felt like I was abandoning her, but I, I, I couldn't stay. I couldn't stay. Consorting with Angels I was tired of being a woman, tired of the spoons and the pots, tired of my mouth and my breasts, tired of the cosmetics and the silks. There were still men who sat at my table, circled around the bowl I offered up. The bowl was filled with purple grapes, and the flies hovered in for the scent, and even my father came with his white bone. But I was tired of the gender of things. Last night I had a dream, and I said to it, you are the answer. You will outlive my husband and my father. In that dream, there was a city made of chains, where Joan was put to death in man's clothes, and the nature of the angels went unexplained. No two made in the same species, one with a nose, one with an ear in its hand, one chewing a star and recording its orbit, each one like a poem obeying itself performing God's functions, a people apart. You are the answer, I said, and entered, lying down on the gates of the city. Then the chains were fastened around me, and I lost my common gender and my final aspect. Adam was on the left of me, and Eve was on the right of me, both thoroughly inconsistent with the world of reason. We wove our arms together, and rode under the sun. I was not a woman any more, not one thing or the other. O daughters of Jerusalem, the king has brought me into his chamber. I am black and I am beautiful. I've been opened and undressed. 
I have no arms or legs. I'm all one skin like a fish. I'm no more a woman than Christ was a man. For many, many years, we've been expecting her to die. It, it wasn't something unexpected. So I felt relieved, and I felt relieved that it was all over, that there were no more crises, that there were no more going to the hospitals. It was over. There was peace. We'd gone crashing finally over that waterfall into the calm waters on the other side. My first reaction was relief, then followed by guilt and sadness. I would like to be able to say, I forgive you, but I'm not sure I could. My mother asked me to read this to her once. She was sitting in the chair that squeaked and I was sitting on the couch, and she cried. A little uncomplicated hymn for joy is what I wanted to write. You will jump to it someday, as you will jump out of the pitch of this house. It will be a holiday, a parade, a fiesta. Then you'll fly, you'll really fly. After that, you'll quite simply, quite calmly, make your own stones, your own floor plan, your own sound. I look for uncomplicated hymns, but love has none. I think that her prophecy came true in many ways. I made my I made my own floor plan. I have my own sound. My mother used to sing me a particular lullaby and it sounds like this. Night night time has come for Linda Gray. Night night time the same time every day. It's night, night time, it's night, night time, night, night time has come. Okay, you got me to sing it. <laughs> Consorting with Angels was produced by Charlotte Austin for Whistledown Productions on BBC Radio 4. Transcripts of Anne Sexton's therapy sessions were read by Lorelai King and Dan Russell. The poems were read by Lorelai King and Anne Sexton herself. To hear other amazing treatments of poetry on the radio, visit our audio library at thirdcoastfestival.org. ReSound is a production of the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. Today's episode was produced by Katie Mingle and Dennis Funk. The program is curated by Johanna Zorn and Sarah Geis of the Third Coast Festival. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. The Third Coast Festival is supported in part by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council, a state agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.